So guys, if you like Faye and I and you have trouble kind of just getting in gear to study or you need something quick and easy for after those long days in the hospital, we have an exciting resource for you. Nick and I have partnered up with the OBG Project to bring you more amazing content every single day. So while Nick and I can record a podcast a week, um, we can't keep up with the OBG Project because they're coming out with new content every single day in case, you know, a podcast a week isn't enough for you. Their content is excellent. And like Faye said, is updated every single day. There's a variety of things ranging from pregnancy to gynecology, all the latest updates, as well as latest in clinical trials, things you may not even read every day. And, you know, Nick and I talked about if this podcast were to get support, who would we get support from? And we decided that, you know, we would only be talking to our supporters about things that we personally use and enjoy and think are useful. So the OBG project is all of those things. If you're a fourth year resident, you can get access to a premium subscription service from the OBG project called OBG First. Check out our website at creogsovercoffee.com on how you can get signed up and get free access to this super awesome subscription service for one year. So OBG First is going to be a daily email or text to your phone that includes a clinical summary of the most relevant research paper. And you'll also be notified when important guidelines come out from important societies such as ACOG, SMFM, SOGC, CDC, etc. It's all available at the tap of a button on your phone too, which is awesome. If you're a fourth-year resident, go ahead and sign up. All they require of you is your email address as well as your program just to verify that you are a fourth-year resident, and they'll send you a coupon in your email that you can use to get one free year of OBG First. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over coffee. Today, we're very excited to have with us Dr. Kyle Wolrab. Uh, Dr. Wolrab is an associate professor and clinical educator at the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University in OBGYN, and he is also uh, part of the Division of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery. Welcome, Dr. Wolrab. Thank you both for having me. Dr. Woolrab is here to talk with us today about the exciting topic of urinary incontinence. So everybody get excited. Woohoo! I hope we have hours. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we've got to cram it down to 15 minutes. Oh, okay, Rabb. we will. So how about some learning objectives for today? So today we'll talk about the main types of urinary incontinence, how to work them up, and then the basic treatments. Sounds easy enough. We talk about all the time, like... This type of incontinence, that type of incontinence, what do we need to know? So the three main types we will concentrate on today are the stress urinary incontinence, overactive bladder, and mixed urinary incontinence, which is what we see most in the office. You know, when you ask women about urinary incontinence, about a third of American women will have urinary incontinence, and that's probably underreported. This is not something women like to talk about. So we see a lot of it. It's our bread and butter. And even as residents... As you rotate on your gynecology, you guys will see a lot. And you'll be expected, no matter what field you go into, to be able to see women, counsel them, and appropriately manage their incontinence, whether it's referral or even basic management. Dr. Woolrab, so talk to us about stress urinary incontinence. So stress urinary incontinence is one of those things we see across all age groups. Typically, I can see women in their 40s, 50s, also 70s, 80s, but even sometimes as young as 20s. Stress urine incontinence is 
when women present with leakage with cough, sneeze, laugh, jump, some kind of physical activity. It typically occurs in small drops. So if a woman comes in and she says, well, I leak a little bit when I cough or jump, or sometimes I'm not sure when it happens, but it's small drops. I'm more suspicious that it's stress incontinence than one of the other ones. Right. How about overactive bladder or urge incontinence? So overactive bladder is more of a muscle spasm. Overactive bladder is akin, I usually use the analogy, to almost like atrial fibrillation. It's a discoordinated spasm of the detrusor muscle that can produce large volume leakage. That one's harder to treat. That could be at times when a woman doesn't expect it. So she could be sitting watching TV. She could get a sudden urge. It's fascinating to talk about the cues that women get. So, for example, they may hear running water or put a key in a door, and that can provoke a detrusor contraction. And then finally, what about mixed urinary incontinence, Dr. Woolrub? So if you estimate a third of women come in to see me with stress incontinence, a third will have urge, and a third will have mixed. They'll have a combination of the two. And mixed is exactly what it sounds like. It is a combination of stress and urge. They could be stress predominant. They could be urge predominant. But it's super important for counseling. If women come in with mixed incontinence, which, again, many women do, they may come in with preconceived notions that they want one aspect treated and thinking that that will treat all of their urine incontinence. But the counseling is important to make sure that they understand, even though they may treat stress incontinence with a surgical or anti-incontinence procedure, their urge may not improve. It could actually worsen and vice versa. They may come in and desire pharmacotherapy for the urge incontinence because they saw the latest commercial and expect their stress incontinence to improve, and it doesn't. So I guess, Dr. Warab, as we're kind of starting into teasing out the different types of incontinence and then ultimately trying to arrive at what the goals of the patient are, especially in a mixed setting, now, what are the essential components, I guess, of a history or any particular questions that you like to make sure that you ask when you're working this up? I think, and Nick, that's one of the most important things you said is, what is the patient's goals? I get many referrals where women were sent in for urinary leakage, and my first question is, well, how much does it bother you? So if a woman comes in with, let's say, stress incontinence, she may have had this for her whole life. It may have been since childbirth. There's an interesting study from Norway. Oh, it's probably about 15 years ago now, the Epicont study, where it followed women over the course of a lifetime to see at what age they develop urinary incontinence. And what we've learned is a lot of it is genetic. Now, I caution women that they have heard from many providers or lay media that this is normal. It's not normal. It's treatable and it's common, but not normal. So although urinary incontinence can start at any age, there are risk factors that predispose it to happen earlier. Childbirth, obesity, things that include a heavy weight bearing, for example, working in factories or lifting heavy objects. These may accelerate the process, but oftentimes there's a genetic component where it would have happened anyways. So if somebody comes in with stress incontinence and they say, well, you know, it happens once every two weeks or once every three weeks, it doesn't really bother me, but my provider wanted me to come in and see you. We'll talk about nice conservative options and ways to treat it. If somebody comes in and they say, you know, I have this leakage every day, every time I cough, sneeze, I've stopped going out, I've stopped going on runs, I was working out, I was losing weight, and now I'm not working out, and I've seen weight gain, then it's a different discussion. But again, it's all about the patient wishes and the patient goals and desires. 
the workup will also be tailored to those desires. So initially, just with the history, how often does it happen? How severe is it? Are you changing pads? Is it once a day, once a week, once a month? You know, going from once a month to once every two months may not be that much of an improvement in a patient's quality of life. But you can imagine going from daily leakage to once a month may be much more of an improvement. So we'll start out with with the history. The amount's also important. Is it small drips or large gushes? Is this something that somebody's going through maybe a small liner a day, maybe no liners or large diapers? Because that plays a large role in their quality of life as well as we know. From there, we'll go on to physical exam. So the physical can be one of the most telling things. An empty cough stress test, you have the patient void and then have them cough in lithotomy position. Oftentimes you can provoke a leakage right there on the table. It's not the best test. Typically a woman is supine. There are some providers that have women stand, even do jumping jacks to see if they elicit leakage. Um, but that's one of the easy things you can start out with. That's basically no cost and no intervention. As we go further, you know, let's say a woman who is having urinary leakage daily, she's bothered by it and is looking for an intervention. She's unsure of its stress incontinence. One of the other simple things you can do is a simple systematogram. That's one of the easiest tests to elicit whether it's truly stress urinary incontinence. You put a catheter in with a Tumi syringe and you fill the bladder slowly looking for a rise in detrusor pressure. Once you get to their max capacity, you can remove the catheter and again, have the woman cough. If you see leakage, it's stress incontinence. If during the filling, you see a rise in the meniscus, well, then that's more indicative of overactive bladder. And again, women can have both. If there's a mixed picture, you can do complex multi-channel urodynamics. We have those available at our office. It's more invasive, but it gives you a lot more information. There's some areas that will not have multi-channel urodynamics or even access. So simple urodynamics is fine, but multi-channel urodynamics will give you things like a rise in detrusor pressure. You'll look for overactive bladder. Even though it's not the best test to, to detect detrusor overactivity, it still can be helpful, especially when it comes to how a woman empties. With the catheter in place, you can get a sense is the woman having, needing to valsalva during emptying, or does she have a, just a normal flow? Thank you so much for that, Dr. Warab. I think that clears up a lot, at least for me. What treatments could we potentially counsel our patients for, for both stress, OAB, and MIC? So, of course, with any treatment, always start with the most conservative, especially on the creogs, and work your way up. Oftentimes, by the time they come into the office and when you're on your urogyne rotation, many women have done conservative treatments and heard about them, but we'll go through them in that order. So I start initially especially with stress incontinence, with three main categories, either physical therapy and Kegels. For Kegels, I usually recommend 10 in a row, three times a day. Some previous studies looking at pelvic floor exercises show about a 50% improvement. So not bad. Not talking cure, but improvement. And that's a no-risk intervention. Pelvic floor physical therapy can also be very useful, especially when women aren't doing great at Kegels. The next category the next step up in invasiveness, so to speak, is vaginal inserts. So we have used pessaries and continence rings for many years, and now there's the poison pressa inserts that are sold over the counter. Much like tampons, these go inside the vagina and push up on the pubic ligament, provide a backboard for support. 
So when a woman does cough or sneeze, there's something that can be compressed against. Poison press inserts are helpful. I have women who love them. I have women who hate them. The, they're very helpful for women who have predictable leakage. For example, they're going to go out and work out and, or go play soccer or something that they can predict. For women who have that unpredictable stress incontinence, a cough, a sneeze, a laugh that's daily, they are disposable and they stay in for about eight hours, just like tampons. Then the next step, of course, is surgical treatments. Surgical treatments vary, whether the sling procedures, many of you know. It's also urethral bulking. There are other types of slings, like rectus fascia slings or the birch procedure. They are all aimed at reinforcing that pubo-urethral ligament. So again, there's a backboard when a woman does have a cough or sneeze, that she won't have leakage. One of my favorite analogies is if you were to look at a garden hose and step on it, if you stepped out in the mud, it would continue to leak. If you stepped on it on the concrete, you would block the flow of water. This is similar to how a sling works by sitting underneath urethra. The force that compresses the urethra down will have a backboard against it. Urethral bulking is the one exception. Urethral bulking does simply that. It bulks up the tissue around the urethra to somewhat close or coapt the urethral caliber. That has less efficacy than a sling or even a birch procedure, but may be helpful in an elderly patient who you cannot use anesthesia with or somebody who's already had a sling and just needs a little bit more reinforcement, especially in women with intrinsic sphincter deficiency. How about overactive bladder? I know kind of that probably we're leaning more towards pharmacotherapy as opposed to surgery most of the time. So overactive bladder is trickier. Again, we don't understand all of the etiology of where overactive bladder comes from. There was a basic science study years ago, I remember as a fellow, where they looked at rabbit muscle to try to identify. Now, how they identify rabbits with OAB, I don't know. But these uh, rabbits supposedly had OAB, and they saw larger gap junctions. Again, is it the chicken or the egg? But the theory was that action potentials propagate over these larger gap junctions. So instead of having a nice coordinated spasm, you have this fibrillation across the bladder. A lot of our treatments are either aimed at avoiding irritants or trying to block those action potentials and slow down the muscle contractions. Initially, we start with things like avoiding bladder irritants, caffeine, artificial sweeteners. Here in Rhode Island, Dunkin' Donuts is a big offender, but as well as things like Crystal Light, I had a patient today with Ocean Spray, artificial sweeteners in the juices, those will cause these bladder spasms. I'm sorry, they won't cause, and I make sure patients understand that. They can drink all the coffee they want. It's not going to cause them to have OAB, but it will exacerbate their symptoms. So I have had patients who, if they drink one or two cups of coffee, they may not notice a difference if they cut it out. If they drink eight cups, they probably will know some, notice some benefit. What I do warn them, though, is if they're going on a long trip, if they're getting on a plane, driving in a car, avoid the bladder irritants for about four hours before, and they'll probably get some benefit. When those conservative methods don't work, we'll discuss about pharmacotherapy. So that can be your anticholinergics or your beta agonist. But we'll also discuss bladder retraining. A head-to-head trial about two years ago now looked at bladder retraining versus pharmacotherapy, and both had about a 60% improvement. And again, when we're talking about stress urine incontinence, we talk a lot about cure. When we're talking about overactive bladder, it's more improvement and decreasing those urge episodes. So the 
pharmacotherapy, of course, works on the muscarinic receptors to try to block the muscle spasms. Bladdery training is different. Bladdery training is a longer course. And what women do is go through a time void in public floor muscle exercises and coordination to try to increase their bladder capacity and decrease the frequency that they have to go. It can be difficult. It's more of a marathon than a sprint. But then again, anticholinergic medications take about four weeks to work. So neither of them are a quick fix. Can you talk a little bit about those medications, Dr. Lorab? I know that, you know, we don't need to go down all the different types, um, but I think maybe just a few, especially for people who are not going into Urogyne, things that they would be comfortable with. Absolutely. So I, I know you want everybody to go into Urogyne. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, initially they started, anticholinergic started with the non-selective medications. These were oxybutynin and tolteridine or digipan and detrol back in the day. They work again by interfering with the postsynaptic receptors. They go and they block the receptors so they don't get activated and they don't cause a contraction of the muscle. We'll make a distinction between that and Botox in a second, but the receptors are actually blocked and then they become downregulated. So that's why it takes three to four weeks. And it's important for women to know that. It may seem an effect, but the maximal effect will be once those receptors are downregulated. The problem with anticholinergics are the side effects. Dry mouth and constipation can be in up to 30% because those same receptors are present in the salivary glands, in the, in the gut muscle, as well as in the eyes. So remember, narrow angle glaucoma is the absolute contraindication. There are other contraindications. You can imagine if somebody has a history of gastroparesis, bad GERD, these things can worsen. But narrow angle glaucoma, you can actually cause irreversible blurry vision and even blindness. So we always check with the ophthalmologist if that's a possibility. Just to, of course, things like cataracts, open angle glaucoma are okay. But I always caution women because they can also develop dry eyes. If you do develop blurry vision, stop right away until we can do a workup. Years later, the newer, more selective antimuscarinic receptors came out. And these include things like Vasicara, Nablax, and Tovias. These were more tolerated and had less dry mouth and constipation. There were also once-daily medications. They work well, but often it comes to really the formulary. Really was what dictates a lot of medications. I don't have a favorite. There's been no head-to-head trials between them that I know of. There were a couple previous ones between Detrol and Oxybutynin. It was like the STAR trial back even before I was a resident, so a long, long time ago. But overall, between 65 and 70% of women will improve with a decreased leakage episodes. There's another one, Cincture Atrospium. Now, this one's a larger medication, but it basically, it's a large enough molecule that doesn't pass through the blood-brain barrier. So when other medications, especially in the elderly, can cause things like dizziness and even CNS side effects, I tend to use trospium because it will cause theoretically less of that. Probably about six years ago now, maybe seven years ago, Rebetric, a beta agonist, came out. Now, beta agonists are nice because they don't cause dry mouth, constipation. They're also not contraindicated in glaucoma, so you can use them in patients with glaucoma. They can cause slight increases in blood pressure. They work di- differently by promoting smooth muscle relaxation, so they can take a little bit longer. I tell patients wait eight weeks before they see a maximal effect. Once again, I don't have a favorite medication. It's important to know they're out there. There are very few 
reasons why you can't use them. And there's different things. For example, Enablex markets themselves. They can be used in cardiac patients with arrhythmias. That's more of a marketing than a real thing. Um, there are muscarinic receptors in the heart, and they can interfere with them. But it's not that that's any better than Vescare or uh, Tovias. They just market it that way. And then finally, when pharmacotherapy doesn't work, the patients tried two or three, that's when we start to talk about the advanced therapies. Intravescal Botox injections, inter, interstim, which is sacroneuromodulation, posterior tibial nerve stimulation. These are all advanced therapies that work on the nerves of the bladder, typically the afferent nerves, to try to decrease those bladder spasms. Intravescal Botox is nice. It's a relatively newer therapy, although we've been doing it for the last eight years since I have been in fellowship. It's been approved more recently in the last five years by insurance companies because it does work well and has actually more leak-free days than even sacroneuromodulation. I guess, Dr. Woolrub, now that we're all pretty comfortable after listening to you in terms of working up urinary incontinence, know when should we be thinking about referring to urogynecologists? That's a great question. Like our division was part of a study when I was a fellow looking at that exact question. So it was called the Bridges Study. And what they wanted to look at is could women be started with overactive bladder with an anticholinergic before going to see a subspecialist? You know, the worry is always if you treat somebody with an anticholinergic, would you put them into urinary retention? Would you cause voiding dysfunction? Would you cause something bad to happen? And the takeaway from Bridges is no, actually, that those risks are very, very low. You could try someone definitely on behavioral therapy. We could counsel them on bladder irritants. You could even try anticholinergics or a beta agonist, pharmacotherapy for that matter. If they have failed one, uh, you may be missing something like incomplete emptying or elevated post-void residual. For example, let's say a 40-year-old comes in, she's got severe frequency nocturia, and you start on anticholinergic, it's worse. That patient coming into my office, the first thing I'm going to do is check her post-void residual. Because at that age group, I'm worried about things like MS or things that may be hiding in the background. So the Bridges study was done just to look for that. And what they found is a PCP could start a patient on a pharmacotherapy and feel safe because the majority of women won't have those bad things. But after one, if it worsens or fails, then it's time for referral. Stress incontinence, you could think the same thing. Behavioral therapy, vaginal inserts, Kegels, we can all definitely counsel patients on Kegels. A two-day voiding diary is a nice intervention. It can be diagnostic, but also therapeutic. We know any women coming in with urinary issues, just by talking to the provider, they may notice some improvement just from awareness alone. So avoiding diary is a nice way to provide that. When they look for things like surgical intervention, that's a nice time to refer. Although more and more, we're seeing more residents comfortable with anti-incontinence procedures, especially sling surgeries. Again, a third of women will have incontinence. We just finished up a large study looking at women presenting to Gynonc called the Cutie Study with urinary incontinence, and 50% of them had urinary incontinence. So there's many more women out there with leakage than your gynecologist to go around for sure. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Woolrab. Yeah, this has been a fabulous tour through the world of incontinence. <laughs> <laughs> it's my pleasure. All right, Nick, should we try and summarize? Yeah, let's do it. So to start off, we visited with Dr. Woolrab about the different types of incontinence. And today we discussed stress incontinence, meaning leakage with laugh, cough, or sneeze. We talked about overactive bladder or urge incontinence. 
which is that random onset, generally larger volume voids that can be difficult to predict or maybe have some triggers. Then mixed incontinence, that is a mixture of the two. We then talked about workup, um, and the most important part that we highlighted with Dr. Woolreb was the history and talking to the patient about what their goals were. So eliciting, you know, just how often the patients are having their leakage, when they're having leakage, and really what they hope that they can achieve with treatment. And then finally, we reviewed therapies for both stress and urge incontinence. For stress incontinence, we broke it down nicely into three primary strategies. Conservative therapy that can include pelvic floor muscle exercises, a little bit more invasive therapy by vaginal inserts, um, and finally, surgical therapies such as sling procedures and the birch procedure. For OAB, we also talked about many different treatments. So one of those things would be avoiding bladder irritants, so things like coffee milk here in Rhode Island. But for patients who are, already have cut out most of these irritants, these may not work as well for them. We can also talk about things like physical therapy for OAB and also moving on to other things like pharmacological therapies, um, as well as more invasive therapies, things like Botox and Interstim. General rule for referral to urogynecologists should be when you fail one line of conservative treatment, consider referral. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, I'm Faye. I'm Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode and liked hearing from Dr. Woolrab, give us a five-star rating or shout-out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. You can also find us on social media on our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com where we'll have many more amazing resources for you to find. You can also find us on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, and our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. If you feel like we missed something on this episode, need to clarify something, or have a correction to a previous episode, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 